Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to be here every week uh, sharing the stories of some wonderful women, uh, not only in the Philadelphia area, but across the country as well. And today I'm joined by a Philadelphia lady, and her name is Kim Landry. Uh, Kim is the founder and president of Hollister Creative, which is an award-winning marketing and communications company here in Philadelphia, founded in 1990, uh, a long time ago. Welcome to the studio. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm excited to hear uh, your your whole story and how you were able to not only found a company, um, a communications company, but sustain it over such a long period of time. Um, But as we always do, we're going to start with your beginning, because I think every story should start at the beginning. And um, I know that you were born in New York. Um, Where is Larchmont? Am I pronouncing that right? Yes, Larchmont. It's on Long Island Sound. It's um, a commuter distance from New York City. My dad commuted to New York City the whole time that we lived there. Uh, it's a it's a lovely town, an older suburb that's probably been completely developed for decades. Um, a nice place to grow up. Yeah, on the water. Parts of it are on the water. I didn't live on the water. Okay. But I lived in a nice neighborhood with dead end streets and lots of kids that were within my age range. So there was always plenty of people to play with uh, in the street. Yeah, <laughs> we in played the street, in the street exactly. back in the day. Yeah, yeah. that's so yeah. nice. And people had yards, and one kid had a big yard, and it was flat, so we could play kickball and baseball and stuff in his yard. It was really nice. Simpler times. (laughs) Yes, I guess you would say that. No one was afraid to let their kids go out and wander around after school until it got dark. Yeah. I always joke about, I grew up the same way, pretty similar, and everyone on the street had everyone else's key to their house. Just in case. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we do that today. No. Um, And so dad was in advertising, I understand. Yes. And uh, your mom was a stay-at-home mom. She was, as were most women in that time. Yeah. Um, She went to Middlebury College where she met my dad. Uh, He was older. He was graduating when uh, she was a sophomore. So she left school after her sophomore year. She was engaged, and uh, that was it. And that was it. Um, I, I, of course, wanted to know if if your dad's uh, career in advertising had an influence on the work that you do today. Uh, I suppose it did because he was very excited about the advertising world. It, it, you could always tell that the creativity involved, and he was on the creative side, um, really turned him on the copywriting and working with. Uh, the people who could bring a commercial to life. He just loved that. Yeah. And, and I know that you have a love of writing. It seems to me, you know, you know, you do a lot of different things at Hollister, mm-hmm. but certainly the writing seems to be something you were interested in um, back in the beginning. Yeah, it's something that has uh, come easily to me since I was a child. And I, in fact, uh, started my first newspaper in elementary school. Oh, you did? <laughs> I called it the Nutty News. The Nutty News. I love that. <laughs> and it was silly because, you know, elementary school kids are silly. And, and I did it to uh, entertain myself and my family. <laughs> 
But uh, my my interest in writing and journalism goes back that far. Yeah. Wow. I love that. that you, you, <laughs> you, and you probably approached a teacher and said, I want to have my own paper. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good yes. for you. So, it was fun. Yeah. Um, so you moved to Boston at, at age mm-hmm. 11, and that must have been difficult. I'm thinking about an 11-year-old girl who has mm-hmm. developed her friends and relationships, and, and now you're moving to a whole new city. Yeah, the, the way that uh, my parents sold me on it was that my mother, who had a lifelong love affair with horses, but grew up in Larchmont, which, as I said, was a very established suburban commuter community. Mm-hmm. Um, the only place that she could ride was a stable nearby called Boulder Brook, where you know you could go and take lessons, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. she had always dreamt of having her own place where she could have her own horses. And of course, as an 11-year-old girl who had read Black Beauty and Misty of Chincoteague and yeah. you know, all of those books, um, I and my sister, who w- was nine, were just enchanted with the idea that we could move to the country and have horses. Yeah. So that that made it actually an exciting move. I bet. So, you know, if you move and you don't cry about it, we'll get you a pony. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It works every time. It would work like a charm, I think, for any kid. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Um, so you so you became interested in horses and you did some riding and and very much so. Horses were a huge part of my life from age eleven on. Um, we lived we did live in places where we could have them you know, on our own property. Mm-hmm. So it was not just going to a barn once a week and taking lessons. We were taking care of our own horses, mucking the stalls feeding them no matter what the weather was and this is boston so there's a lot of nasty weather in the winter but uh, you learn a lot of responsibility when you're taking care of a horse but you love the horse so much that it just you would never think i'm i'm too tired it's too cold whatever you have to go feed the horse and take care of the horse and clean its stall that's just you're taking care of him out of love. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But it's hard labor. I mean, really, that is a it great is. lesson for a young kid to have those responsibilities. Yeah. It, it really, um, I think, was a wonderful thing. And I think pets in general are a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. And often families get pets and they think the kids are going to take care of them. And then the kids don't. It ends up being the parent's responsibility. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a way to get kids to take on responsibility if you really do follow through and say no it's it's your dog and it's your responsibility and I don't care that it's raining or it's 25 degrees you need to go walk the dog yeah rather than just oh okay honey no go do it for you yeah well and to get them to think about someone or something else other than themselves which mm-hmm. children are tend to be self-centered mm-hmm. yeah it's mm-hmm. a great lesson how long did you have the horses i mean at some point you know you yeah when i went off not- to college um we still had two and um i took one of the horses to college with me which ended up being a mistake because i just didn't have the time I was so involved with college that getting myself over to the barn where she was kept and riding her and all, it just, I didn't go often enough. Yeah. So after that uh, year, my mom found a place for the horse that we'd had from the beginning, who we were all way too attached to, mm. to ever sell. Um, she found a home for that horse temporarily until I got out of college. Um, and we sold the other horse, which 
at that point, that was the, the original horse's daughter. Oh, okay. Well, that must have been a, a tough loss, you know, when that horse It was just passed. necessary. You know, we were at a different point in life. Um, my parents had divorced by then. My mother was not living in a place where she could keep the horse. My dad had moved to California. Okay. And I, you know, I had my own young life to start. I needed yeah. to graduate from college and get a job. And horses are expensive. Mm-hmm. It's not something that a person who's just graduating from college is going to be able to afford. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you went to Middlebury College. I did. Yeah. yeah. And, and was that a, um, a choice to follow in mom's footsteps? Was Did your mom go to My Middlebury? My parents both went they to both Middlebury. They both did. Right, right. Yeah. So um, I had applied to several similar places mm-hmm. um, as well as UMass. And when I got into a few, Middlebury seemed like the best choice. Uh, certainly I felt I had an advantage that both my parents had gone there. You'd been there, I'm assuming, and it's familiar Mm -hmm. to you. And Mm -hmm. the other colleges that I applied to, like Bowdoin and Colby and Bates, were all small northern New England colleges. So I knew that was the type of college I wanted. Okay. And Middlebury fit the bill. Yeah. And um, what was your major? American literature? American literature. Okay. So again, following that you know, that love of writing and literature, you, you did yeah. that right off the bat? I didn't. Actually, I started there. I thought that I wanted to be a lawyer. I, uh, I've i always loved the courtroom-type TV show, mm-hmm. um, the Perry Mason thing. Now, I'm still my favorite show is Law & Order. So. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. My <laughs> Some daughter never lo- change. Yeah, she loves that show. <laughs> loves that but show. what I found out when I started learning more about what real lawyers do is that you spend a ton of time in libraries with documents, you don't spend your time with people. With people, right. And I'm a big people person, mm-hmm. and that would have been a terrible career for me to go into. Yeah. So I'm glad that I didn't. Journalism ended up being the perfect thing for me. Yeah. Because like you, I love meeting new people. I love hearing stories. their stories and telling their stories. So. Yeah. I found the right thing for me. Yeah, that's great. What types of things, activities were you involved in while in college, outside I, of the classroom? Yeah, outside of the classroom. I, um, as I said, I took my horse to school, so that that was a bit of a distraction from getting involved in things on campus. Mm-hmm. But I was on the swim team freshman year, and then got involved with the school newspaper okay. um, my sophomore year. And mm-hmm. by senior year, I was the editor of the newspaper. So I had, uh, that was a big interest. And I also started working for a local weekly newspaper that was based in Middlebury. So I was getting real world journalism experience Mm -hmm. um, while working on the college newspaper. Because a college newspaper is a a different thing. Absolutely. From from working on a real local newspaper. Yeah. And back in in our day, there were, you know, there weren't so many opportunities for internships and real world learning and mentoring and programs and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. It's so much a part of uh, the kids learning today, which is which I think is so important and oh, makes absolutely. so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just graduate, come out of a school classroom and be thrown into the real world. And kids I, yeah. are. Yeah. I think the more experiences that you can have during college working at a business, the more the better. Yeah. In fact, this spring we had an intern for a month was a high school student. She went to Conestoga High School, and they have a program for seniors who have met certain requirements that they can take the last month of their senior year and go do an externship in an area of interest. And I was just amazed by 
this young woman. She was so smart and capable and willing. And I thought, wow, I'm getting as much out of this as she is, just having her around and her perspective and all. Um, But I I think that kind of thing, starting however young, is just great because you learn what it's like in in an office Mm -hmm. and what things you enjoy and don't enjoy. Mm -hmm. And how to interact with people, you know, Mm -hmm. on a professional level. Yes. That's really important. What were some of the challenges you faced as a young girl? Um, Personal challenges, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a lack of confidence or belief in in oneself or um, whether you, you know, just had troubles with interacting with peers and friends or what were some of the the struggles that you faced? You know, it's funny. I I hear that from um, women a lot, that that is a big challenge for them. And I guess I'm fortunate that it never was for me. I've always had an overabundance of confidence. I think maybe it's because my father didn't have any sons. So he had to put all of his, (laughs) uh, all of his beliefs in his daughters achieving their dreams. So, um, I never felt there was anything that boys could do that I couldn't do. That's Starting great. when I was like a child, yeah. I was the the um, unnamed leader of the group of kids in my neighborhood. I was the one who'd say, "Let's go do this," or "How about that?" or you know, "Build a fort," or yeah, you no, know, go down to the stream and and get crabs or whatever it was. And um, I took on leadership positions in school. Um, and always felt that it was kind of natural. So maybe I'm just bossy. <laughs> That's a possibility. Are we allowed to say bossy today? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, um, you may be able to in my case. I don't know. I try not to be. Well, bossy um, is, I think, you you know, when we talk about, you know, bossy and banning bossy and all that, I think it's so silly. It really is just someone who is who leads, you know. He, yeah, I notice leadership vacuums and they bother me and I um, I will step in to fill them where I see like someone needs to lead this because otherwise it's just going in circles and we're not going to accomplish anything yeah, right that uh, that's just something that um, I you, don't know it just feels natural to me yeah well I yeah. bet it does come from I you know I think I've had other women on the show who were only girls and you know you were the oldest was I was your, the oldest. You I were the oldest. Sister, two years younger. Yeah. So the responsibility was often placed on you, and I do think that 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 kind of physical labor that you grew up with working, you know, mm-hmm. really does teach you to take initiative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't feel the need to knock other leaders out of their position if they're leading. That's mm-hmm. um, I'm not that competitive. Good, but. Uh, <laughs> No, I really admire I think admire they call that controlling. That. Yes, So you yes. allow others, yeah. <laughs> I really admire um, people who I think are doing a wonderful job mm-hmm. of leading. Yeah. Um, but I remember in my first job after college, I was working on a weekly newspaper group, and um, I got involved with the New England Newspaper Association. I was on some committee or whatever to come up with um, events. Mm-hmm. And I decided that I wanted to put on a management training, like leadership event, because there was no training available for people who were reporters and editors to kind of move up in organizations. Mm -hmm. It just, if 
there was an opening and you'd been there long enough and you were a good reporter, then you got put in charge of other reporters. And the, the true thing is that some people who are great at being reporters are terrible at leading other people and right. shouldn't be in that job That's and right. really should use their talents, which are in the reporting field, and there should be a career track for them mm-hmm. to attain their financial goals, et cetera, without having to become leaders. And then there are other people who are going to just take to that and you can develop them and they can become key people in the organization. But this at the time was a kind of a foreign concept in the newspaper industry. And to a large extent, I still think it is. There are some industries where leadership development starts the day you walk in the door. um, And I admire that. But there are a lot of industries where that that doesn't happen. And I think that's a shame because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of aspects of leadership that really can be taught. Yes, and there's always room to grow. Absolutely. Right? No matter how, how yes. good or an expert you are in your field, there's yes. always opportunities for growth. And you know, you I'm constantly just... reading things about leadership. Yeah. Or or webinars or sending my employees to leadership development um, seminars, webinars, whatever. Because mm-hmm. you can continue learning forever. Yeah. Um, how to be a better leader. That's right. Do it better. Um, let's talk for a couple minutes about your children. Uh, you're married. and <laughs> Oh, yes. And Every you, mother loves to talk about I her know. children. <laughs> we got to give Jasmine and Ethan a shout out, right? Um, yes. Yeah, and I'm always, uh, you know, interested in how women who are on my show, you know, speak to their daughters. But you have a son and a daughter, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. Talk mm-hmm. about them for a couple minutes, what they're doing. Okay. So um, Jasmine went to Penn, and she got very intrigued with Teach for America and decided that that's what she wanted to do after college. She thought of it mostly as a way to kind of do a Peace Corps thing and give back for a couple of years by teaching in an underprivileged uh, urban school, which is what Teach for America is all about. That's great. And uh, she got into the program, which isn't easy. I admire her for all she had to do to, to get in in the first place. And then it's extremely rigorous. You go to a boot camp for six weeks in the summer, and then you're put in front of a classroom of students. Wow. With so you have some support, but you don't have someone standing there in the classroom with you. Right. Um, so it takes a, a really brave individual who is going to be extremely resilient because you're going to get knocked down a lot in this foreign environment with children that you've never taught before. It's first year teaching is hard for anyone, even people who went through teachers' colleges and were well prepared and had student teaching opportunities and all that. So um, she not only stuck it out through a very difficult first year, she just caught the bug. She just it became very mission driven for her when she saw the potential that these kids had and how bad some of the circumstances were that they were living in and the schools that they were in. What area was she first placed in? Uh, she was in the Bronx. Okay. In New York. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so after her two-year commitment was up, she had also by then gotten her master's degree, which is uh, required that you go through the first year of a master's program in order to get certification. Mm-hmm. And then it's up to you if you want to continue for the second year and get your master's, which she did, which made the whole thing even more difficult because she's in graduate school while she's working full time. Wow. Um, wow. But she came out of those two years having decided that this was her career. Um, 
and she went to a charter school in Brooklyn to get a different kind of experience because she'd been in a public school the first two years mm-hmm. and um, loved teaching in a charter school. After four years in New York, she wanted to come back to Philadelphia, which had, had always been her plan to eventually come back here. We need her here. Yeah, she, I think she's here for good now, Good, which is great for me. Uh, she taught kindergarten at Mastery Charter Schools and then um, got offered a really huge promotion to be their director of the elementary program, which is a curriculum position. And uh, she's been doing that now for, I think, four years. At the time, Mastery had three elementary schools, and now they have nine at least, maybe more than that. Does she miss being in the classroom? She does occasionally, Mm -hmm. especially the year she taught kindergarten. I think that was her favorite year. But plus, by then, she was a really experienced teacher. Yeah. Um, So that could be why it's her favorite. But she also just loves that age of children. Mm But she, you know, instead of affecting the lives of 25 kids a year, she's now affecting the lives of thousands right. of children yes. every year. Yes. And she's become, you know, a real expert in curriculum, and she does some consulting for other schools. And uh, I think it's become a, a very, very satisfying career path yeah. for her, very challenging. But she's doing something that she believes in. She's saving the world, as everyone who's 30 years old wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that's very satisfying. It is. And, I, you know, when you say challenging, I think of, uh, you know, just the day-to-day com- meetings of the minds. And everyone kind of has strong, different opinions on how education should be, you know, best addressed in the problem. Oh, it's so hard. It's yeah. so hard. It, it just kind of becomes, you know, political, mm-hmm. you know, so... Good for her for, you know, finding her calling and stick, sticking mm-hmm. with it because it's it's critical. And I'm I'm proud of one thing when it comes to Jasmine. I, you know, the rest of it I give her total credit for. But that I feel like I raised my kids to be resilient mm-hmm. and to not expect things to be easy. Yeah. And um, that has served her very well. She's extremely resilient because there are there are so many challenges when you take on a uh, job as big as fixing urban education mm. and individually and with you know her team the whole mastery uh, organization they're so mission driven and uh, really really great people trying to make a difference but there are a lot of setbacks and yeah. there's a lot of challenges yeah. and you have to just keep bouncing back and saying how can we do this better right right that's fantastic i what you know instilling resilience in kids is to me the number one thing you, you need to do Aside from being kind mm-hmm. <laughs> to people. Yes, be nice. Be right. nice. <laughs> be tough and be nice. Um, so, And then now your son, Ethan, he's living Ethan. an exciting life as an actor. Yes. He, um, and in that field, resilience is extremely mm. important oh gosh, as yeah. well. because Rejection, rejection. The rejection. Oh, my God, yes. And you're putting yourself out there all the time when you're auditioning for things. And you... You give it your heart and soul, and, and often you're burying your soul when you're auditioning for a part. Yes. Because um, that's what it takes to be a really compelling actor. And um, so that's what he's pursuing his dream. He went to the University of Miami. He was in the communications school, and he majored in film. And um, he, his minor was theater. He had always loved the idea of making movies, and I wouldn't be surprised if ultimately that's where his career direction goes. But there's no career path 
to becoming a filmmaker. You have to make your own way. It's not like, you know, you get an entry-level job in an accounting firm right. and that path is all laid out for you. Right. You go out to Hollywood, you have to figure it out. And he's um, blessed to be very handsome and he has a great voice. So he has a lot of the natural things. The that, things they look for. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. But even so, there's a gazillion people out there who are handsome. And the women, unbelievable. How gorgeous they all are. <laughs> they all cluster in Los Angeles. All the Angeles. good-looking people are in Hollywood. <laughs> Very intimidating. <laughs> yes. So like all um, aspiring actors, he was supporting himself by being a bartender and a waiter mm-hmm. um, and got uh, several really great parts but nothing so far in the six years that he's been out there working really hard at this, nothing so far has led to, okay, so now you have a career and you can support yourself as an actor. Right. You're, you're, you're so right. It's kind of moving from one opportunity to another. Yes. As opposed to, you know, studying a craft yes. and naturally working your way up. Yeah. So he's it's had hard. some incredible experiences. His first acting role was on a Roger Corman film and he got the lead in the film. Terrific. So he had just a fantastic time being treated like royalty as the lead in this film. And then you go from that back to being a waiter. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about ups and downs. <laughs> you know, one week you're in a gorgeous suite in Las Vegas and you got chauffeurs Getting driving you powdered. around. Yes, people are fussing all over you. And then the next week, like, you're a waiter again. Yeah. Talk Uh, about resilience. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Then his next gig was in Japan, which was another fabulous opportunity. He got um, the role as the the American who loves her and leaves her in Madame Butterfly, the the, um, public television station in Japan, NHK was doing a dramatic non-musical version of Madame Butterfly and they had this uh, young woman playing the lead who Ethan described as the Natalie Portman of Japan. Mm. She was just a really popular, gorgeous young actress. So they knew they were going to have a huge audience for this on public television. And uh, so he got the role as the American and he got wine and dined in Japan for seven weeks. He had a personal assistant who was his translator who made sure that he got his meals and that you know he was put up in this beautiful hotel in downtown Tokyo. Wow. And he just had like just an amazing experience traveling all over Japan filming this movie. And then um, you know, came back home and was a waiter. <laughs> was a waiter yeah. again. <laughs> Well, he's building his resume slowly. I guess, slowly. Yes. yeah. So the exciting thing that he, he's done most recently is he and a couple of his buddies from film school, on their own, did a Kickstarter campaign to go shoot a feature film in China. Nice. And they went over there, just three of them. Did they re- meet, reach their goal with the Kickstarter yes, program? Yes, they did. Mm-hmm. They went to China last November mm-hmm. and um, shot a movie there in about six weeks. Um, using completely untrained people. Um, Ethan was the only trained actor in the whole bunch. And uh, so they wrote this, they filmed it, they've been editing it for a year. They're about ready to go into post-production in the new year. So he is 
in this case, he's an actor and he's a filmmaker. Right. Um, and they're really hoping that this, they can get into festivals and that that will be a way to, to launch them. Right. So they're trying every which way, yeah. all of them, as well, these kids have to do. They have to do. And it's so much about the networking and meeting the right yes. people, too. Because when you meet somebody who believes in you and your work, mm-hmm. they're going to refer you to, to, to someone else. It's always a next step forward. Yeah, networking is key, I think, in everyone's career. Yeah. Excuse me. Networking. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about networking because, you know, we were talking before the show about how we go to a lot of events and Mm -hmm. um, it's important. I mean, sometimes people think the word networking is a negative connotation. It really isn't. It's about meeting people, Mm -hmm. seeing if you can, you know, I help you, you help me. Mm -hmm. And you can never, um, you know, progress forward if you're not continually building new relationships how That's do so you, true. Yeah. How do you make the most of the network? Do you do you do it very strategically? In other words, you know, try to get to an event once a month, or do you just as things come in and invitations, you pick and choose what's going to be valuable or make sense? Um, I I used to be involved in multiple networking um, groups, and I decided to cut down the number of them and get more involved in the ones that I decided to stick with. Mm -hmm. And that's been a good strategy for me. So I'm not as all over the place as I used to be. But um, since I was um, elected to the board of the Mainline Chamber of Commerce two years ago, a lot of my networking has been through the chamber Mm -hmm. because I want to be very involved since I'm on the board. Um, I also go to... um, Greater Philadelphia Chamber events from time to time. I'm a member there too, and uh, NABO, National Association of Women Business Owners. Mm-hmm. So those are three groups that I decided to focus on. Um, and it's important, I think, in networking to be building a network of people that you can refer people to, mm-hmm. not just to think of it selfishly as what can they send me. Because right. I can often help my clients or prospects when I hear of a problem that they're having that I can't address to say, I, I know someone. Right. You want to develop a pool of, yeah. of people that you can turn to. Yes. yes. And that you trust and you know they're going to do a good job for them. And then that person's grateful that you help them find a good resource. Exactly. So it's it's just a holistic thing, I right. think. Yeah. Um, building a network. That's right. And it should happen organically, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to take a quick break and we will be back with Kim Landry, the founder and president of Hollister Creative. We'll be right back. Are you looking for something special to wear to an event, on a date, or out with the girls? Nevada is a Philadelphia-based luxury label designed for the effortlessly chic global nomad. Our ready-to-wear and custom pieces, which include bridal wear, by the way, are inspired by artistry and travel. The line is intriguing and exotic. After all, fashion should create a sense of escape. So go ahead, escape with Nevada, and make a timeless impression. Please visit us online at nevadacouture.com. Have you ever wondered about the magic of Paris? Traveled there before? You haven't experienced Paris until you've traveled with us. I'm Chloe Johnson, the owner of CJ Tours. I became hooked on the mystique of all things Parisian after just one visit to the City of Light. CJ Tours, a travel, fashion, and product company, provides an experience unlike any other when it comes to exploring the hidden gems of Paris. We connect you with boutiques off the beaten path. We provide the opportunity to go behind the scenes with some of the most celebrated designers Paris has to offer. 
You can even purchase one-of-a-kind French pieces as mementos of your trip or ask us to source that special piece just for you. CJ Tours and our unique products are designed to provide that Parisian je ne sais quoi and allow you to experience Paris like never before. To learn more, contact me at Chloe Johnston at cjshoppingtours.com or simply visit chloejohnston.com for more information. Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. Uh, my name is Sue Rocco, and I'm being joined today by Kim Landry. Kim Landry is the founder and president of Hollister Creative, which is an award-winning marketing and communications company here in Philadelphia. And uh, it was founded in 1990, so I wanted to come back from the break and and talk to Kim about, you know, how that came about. You know, what were those what was the, uh, I guess, the aha moment when you said, you know what, I'm going to start my own company in, in marketing mm-hmm. and communications? Um, well, I had begun my career in journalism and uh, thought I would always stay in journalism because I loved it. And there was a lot of opportunity in, in that era. Mm-hmm. Um, but I took some time off to have my kids. Uh, Jasmine was born in 1984 and then Ethan in 1986. And throughout their uh, preschool years, I was freelancing because I didn't want to work full time. They were in part time daycare so that I could kind of keep a hand in Mm -hmm. and talk to adults some of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And I enjoyed the freelancing. But when it came to looking ahead and where that was going to lead once my kids were in school full time, I realized that being a freelancer is a hard life. You're never going to make very much money being a freelance writer. Mm -hmm. And what I learned was that if I could deliver completed projects, so I would collaborate with a designer and be able to say, here, it's done. I managed the project. You have a finished product here that I could make a lot more money and have a lot more opportunity. And that's where the idea to have a business kind of came into play is how do I go from being a freelance writer to being able to deliver a finished product so that whoever was hiring me as the writer no longer had to be the project manager and pull together a lot of different freelancers to make something happen. Mm -hmm. So I had developed the trust with my writing clients that I was reliable, I was smart, I could deliver. So when I said, okay, so now let me do the whole thing and deliver a finished product, they were actually delighted because it lightened their load and now it was on me to make it all happen. Bring every, everyone together. Yeah. yeah. And so when you say the, you know, uh, uh, deliver um, a completed project, you're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, the writing, the, the, and the design, design. And, mm-hmm. yeah, communications and PR, I guess, all of that. Well, it was all, all of my clients in the beginning were publications. So um, I was doing special projects for the Philadelphia Inquirer, like I would put together their League of Women Voters voter guide or an educational piece or um, an advertorial piece. Because back in the day, newspapers did not allow their staff writers to be tainted in any way by something that was advertising related. So if there had to be a piece created, let's say, um, to have some editorial content around real estate ads, that was very common at the time, that there would be a special section once a week about new homes or real estate. Well, who was going to write all that copy? 
They couldn't be a reporter under the inquirer's standards and the standards of most newspapers at the time because the the content in that kind of a section had to pass muster with the advertisers, and they would not allow reporters to do that. So it was a great thing to outsource to me because I knew how to be a professional reporter, but I also understood that I was serving the advertisers. That was the whole point. Mm -hmm. So we would write articles that were informative and interesting, but never said anything bad about the advertisers. So that's really what advertorial is is all about. It's drawing readers in with content in order to promote the advertising that was surrounding it. And that became really the beginning of uh, the growth of my business was that the Inquirer in the early 90s was ramping up advertorial. They were also doing a lot of education content because mm-hmm. they were selling bulk subscriptions of the newspaper to schools. And when you sell more subscriptions, you can charge more for your advertising because advertising is based on circulation. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of educational pieces that needed to be created in order to get schools to buy the newspaper. So we would do educational pieces on um, a current events topic or on an evergreen topic around Black History Month or Women's History Month or the holidays. Um, Whatever's so, happening. At the, I mean, that's always a yeah. Big part of it, right? Yeah. What's hap- what time of year is it? What's going on? Sure, because that's the lives? way classrooms operated. Mm-hmm. They operated around holidays, essentially. Right. Um, but we also did current events pieces. Like, we would explain what was going on in Iraq or after September 11th. Like, what was that all about? What happened? Um, and take on topics that were from anywhere from third grade all the way through high school. So in high school, we might t- talk about... Um, agriculture or some you know big topic that people in a high school class would be studying and in third graders we you know might talk about um, reading so there was a wide variety of topics both advertorial and educational and at the same time I was developing clients outside of newspapers so we started doing newsletters and magazines and advertisements and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. because now I had the capability to do finished products, whatever that product was. And at the time, they were all print products. So that dates it, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Now, at this time, it was, first of all, how did you come up with the name Hollister Creative? Oh, that that was my middle name before I got married. I grew up as... That's a great name. Kim Kim Hollister? Kim Hollister Ryland. That was my name. So um, my middle name came from a um, relative, I think maybe my grandfather's grandfather or something. His name was Austin Hollister Catlin. Wow, that's so, a great. Is that in English? English, yes. yes. So I got a middle name from my mother's family. My sister got a middle name from my father's family. Um, anyway, so that so when you, I wanted to name the company, I yeah. didn't want it to be Kim Landry Associates. I wanted to start from the beginning thinking of it as something bigger than myself, which was the whole thing of imagining I am not a freelance writer. I now have a business, mm-hmm. and this is the name of the business. It's not all about me anymore. I have a designer. Um, in fact, the designer that I first hired is still with me. So she was 
right out of Drexel University. Wow. Oh, that's yeah. great. I love that. I love that. So, you yes. know, for the listeners, this is a company that's been in Philadelphia for 24 years. Are you in your 24th year? Yes, we are. Yeah, 24 years. 25 years, years of being uh, May 2015. Okay. So you've seen, my goodness, a lot of change in the area of marketing and communications because of technology, for sure. Absolutely. And um, that, that might make a good documentary, maybe, right? To see the, <laughs> see the path that it's taken and, and all the different tools that we have today and first of all I guess I want to know how you seem to me to be someone who will go with the times and change with the times and find that exciting Mm -hmm. as opposed to fighting it and saying you know we've done this you know for this way for 10 years and I'm not going to change Um, yeah I'm a novelty junkie so that really helps with technology because I'm always interested in learning something new or trying out something I'm the same way with um now, travel. I, I don't want to keep going back to the same place. Mm-hmm. If I've been there, I'm less interested in going there again. Yeah. Unless it's because I'm visiting family. Mm-hmm. But um, I really like something new. One of the things my husband and I have been doing since we've been empty nesters is trying every couple of months at least to do something we've never done before. Go someplace we've never done before. So I'm the same way in the business. I always want to be learning, like, what's coming down the pike? Mm -hmm. What do I need to pay attention to? What do I need to tell my clients is important? Right. And certainly that has served me well in marketing because, oh, my God, has it changed a lot. So much. Well, and it's continually daily changing. So everything is so rapidly changing. When when you sit with a client, um, and and I would assume it's going to be, quite different if you're with someone from the younger generation that has grown up with this mm-hmm. and someone you know who hasn't when you say listen I know social media may seem silly to you but we need to incorporate that mm-hmm. in this campaign mm-hmm. how do you see the differences how do you handle that well um, I now have several employees who are younger than my children so I I do um, daily encounter people who have a different perspective from mine, which I think is very healthy, and all organizations should embrace a multi-generational workforce mm-hmm. because the, the people who are older have a lot to offer in the way of wisdom and perspective, and the young people are uh, brave and curious and want to be attacking the horizon. Right. So yeah. that's really a great combination. And when it comes to clients, I think because I'm older, I'm 59, I can relate easily to people who are you know, in their 50s, 60s, who feel a little uncomfortable or, or um, like a fish out of water when it comes to technology, social media, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I can help them to understand why it's important without it being threatening. Right. And I'm a big uh, believer in speaking plainly and not using jargon and showing as well as telling so that I can walk people through, look, here's what your competitors are doing. Let's go look at their Facebook page. Let's look at their LinkedIn profile. See what they're doing and how many connections they have and, and what they are probably doing to engage those connections that you're not doing. Right. So um, it's, I think it's helpful that when I'm dealing with younger people that I also am in daily working relationships with younger people so it's not a different thing to go meet with people who are my kids' age or younger yeah. because they're on my staff. Yes. And, you know, at the end of the day, it 
it's really about the story, right? And how to best mm-hmm. tell the story. Absolutely. I, I'm always amazed when I go to a website and the first thing I want to see is about. In other words, what, who are these people, yes. right? And how did it start? And so often it's not there. So, you know, you have to scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page and it'll say about. Yeah. So that's a big mistake. <laughs> right? You have it? seconds to engage someone when they land on your website. Yes. Seconds. So it's a it's very much like when you meet someone um, and you have seconds for them to size you up mm-hmm. and decide whether they like you or don't and mm-hmm. want to talk to you or don't, respect you or don't. It's the same way with a website. It's I tell people it's like meeting you in avatar form. You have to make it just as engaging as you are and you need to signal trustworthiness the way that yes. you do in person by your demeanor, the way you dress, the way you stand, the way you smile or don't. Your website has to have that same um, personality and professionalism. And it needs to be instantly apparent. Instant, yes. Yes, I agree. I, You know, other than the, here's our services, I want to know who it should be who we are and, you know, how we came to start this company mm-hmm. and then, you know, go into all the, you know, the ins and outs of what they do. Mm-hmm. I'm always amazed by that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so well, the one thing that hasn't changed in marketing, and, and this is where I think older people can still feel comfortable, is that it's still all about engaging the right target audience. That's what it's always been about. And only the tools to do that have changed. But if you're in a service business, like most of my clients, we focus on service businesses or purchases that are um, a huge investment Mm -hmm. where people are going to take some time and weigh some options. It's not an impulse purchase. It's not like going on Amazon and buying a book. It's um, a high consideration purchase. You're not going to sell that person until they meet with you. The sale to my clients is made in person. Developing the the trust, as you said. Yes. 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 So all of these are tools to help people get to know, like, and trust you. Mm -hmm. And that's the point at which they're going to reach out to you and have a conversation and where you're going to convert them into clients. You can convert them into leads uh, virtually on a website when they raise their hand and say, send me information, call me, or they call you. But you haven't got them as a client until you've engaged with them personally. Right. What are some of the questions when you sit down with a client for the very first time? Um, I'm assuming, you know, you're inquisitive and, you know, you want to learn about them right before you figure out which direction you're going to go. What are some of the questions you ask of a client when you first meet them? Well, it's interesting. I, um, I used to go into clients and feel like I had to present. So like I had to do a little dog and pony show about why we're great. And um, I took a sales training course in 2007 from a company called Sales Evolution. It's run by a guy named Scott Messer, who has been um, a great mentor and friend to me. And his training taught me to stop doing that. His training taught me it's not about you. It's about them. 
And once I grasped that, sales became so much easier to me because what I want to do naturally, because I was a reporter and I love interviewing people, was I wanted to sit with down with people and find out, well, what are your problems? What are your challenges? And how can I help you? And now that's what I do. And it's easier, isn't it's it? It's so and much easier and right. it works so much better. And you know what? They rarely ask me anything about myself or my company. And I think part of it is that they've already checked me out. They mm -hmm. went to my website. And I tell people all the time who think their website doesn't sell for them, I say, it's either selling for, for you or it's turning people away. Because trust me, they all went and looked at your website before they called you. That's right. That's right. They didn't call you without going to your website. It doesn't happen anymore. Right. So this is confirmed in virtually every conversation that I have with a new prospect in that they don't ask me any questions. Yeah. Well, when you know what? When you're taking the focus off of you, mm -hmm. it, you know, you don't have that that kind of nervous feeling of, you know, I got to make this sale. Yeah. You put the focus on them. Yeah. Where it should be so that exactly. you're going to offer them the best service anyway. Yeah. And yeah. the conversation becomes all about them yeah. and their problems, which is very easy for them to talk about because that's their life. Right. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the conversation, I have a really good understanding of what their issues are and whether I can help them. Because right. in some cases, I'm not the right answer. Yeah. yeah. And I try to be very upfront about that, that, you know, that's a problem. And I know someone who can help you with that, but it isn't me. Yeah. Which is a great um, ability or quality to have to, to, to be able to say, you know what, maybe we're not a good fit to work together mm -hmm. and not just kind of jump in and, and then end up doing it wrong, mm -hmm. you know. Um, tell me, I know that you, you're involved in a lot. You're, you sit on several boards and you're, you're a member of several organizations. The United Way is mm -hmm. an organization. What, what prompted you to get involved with them? Um, this was probably five years ago. Um, United Way had this organization within it called the uh, Women's Initiative. And it had been started by a small group of really high-powered women um, maybe 11, 12 years ago now, and they wanted to focus on underprivileged young women, girls, uh, however you want to describe people who are 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, because that was a very vulnerable time in a girl's life where she was either going forward or getting stuck. And a lot of um, people girls and boys drop out of school in ninth grade. It's the highest grade as far as dropping out. Um, so they wanted to catch these girls in middle school while they were still um, curious and open and their course in life could be changed because they hadn't taken that dramatic step of dropping out of school. Mm -hmm. So they came up with this program um, that I learned about when I got involved about five years ago called Girls Today, Leaders Tomorrow. And it's a mentoring program. And they partner with a bunch of um, community agencies in the greater Philadelphia area, some downtown, but some out in Pottstown or Westchester or Norristown. And those community agencies select one or two girls a year from the people that they're already working with as candidates for this program. Mm. And the girls go through this year-long program where they're doing um, once a month, Saturday, all-day Saturday retreats, where they're learning about building self-confidence, building self-esteem, leadership, 
um, getting along with a diverse group of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been hugely successful for the girls. They're, they've now expanded it over the last year or so. They they stopped running it themselves and are now pow- excuse me, partnering with the Girl Scouts to run the program for them because the Girl Scouts know a lot about running programs. Mm-hmm. And the United Way doesn't usually run programs. Right. They just fund programs. Right. So now this fits that model. And they're expanding it through high school because they want to continue to support these girls all the way through high school graduation and into college. So the the vision has become bigger than just keeping them from dropping out in ninth grade. It's now taken on, let's get them successfully through high school and into college. So it's it's a really terrific uh, initiative. Yeah, great program. And how how were the mentors found? Who, Who are the mentors? The mentors are women who come to the United Way through the Women's Initiative. So the the um, Girl Scouts have people who run the program, but the mentors are all professional businesswomen. Okay, from all over different industries. Yes. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. You know what would be great would be to take you know follow the story of one of these young ladies who entered the program and and where is she now? I'm sure the United Way would be pleased to get one of those girls on your radio I show. I would love that. <laughs> I would love all that. All right, we'll make that happen. Yeah, terrific. Yeah, there are some really terrific stories I'm because sure. every year at the gala which they hold in March. It's the big fundraiser for Girls Today Leaders Tomorrow. They always have at least one girl who's a graduate of the program talk about her experience and how it changed her life. Yeah. You know, mentors are, can be everything. And, and, mm-hmm. and it can be at one moment, one day mm-hmm. of, of a young woman or, or a young boy as well, um, finding that person who says, you know, not only can you do it, but I'm going to help you do it. Someone who believes in you is... Huge. And, and I and I hear this all the time from my daughter with, you know, what is it that makes the difference between a great school and a school that um, suffers? <clears throat> and one of the things is that the kids need to feel a sense of their own worth and their own possibilities and have high standards set for them and people who believe in them that they can reach these high standards. Is One of the reasons that these failing schools have failed is that people in general think children who grow up in poverty, maybe with one parent, maybe with parents who, um, one or more parents who are in prison or had a drug problem or whatever, sometimes it's just plain old poverty, um, that they they lower their expectations. They think, well, these kids can't, it's too hard so let's not even try mm-hmm. because we don't want to disappoint them or make them sad. Yeah. Let's it's, just babysit them. Yeah, it comes from compassion. You know, the problem is it does. you just want to kind of take care of them and yes. coddle them as opposed to, I love it's what you're saying. It's misdirected compassion. Yes, yes. High it's, standards is key. We all, you know, accomplished parents do that naturally because right. they expect their children to rise to their own level and in many cases and this is like the american dream right you expect your kids to exceed your own level of success mm-hmm. well in the poverty stricken areas of the country whether they're in the inner city or they're in appalachia or they're on an indian reservation you have parents who are hopeless and so they're raising hopeless children yeah. not because they want to but because they can't help it they don't have the you know the the enthusiasm behind them to 
you know, to, as you said, you know, place these higher standards. Mm-hmm. The kids are capable no matter where they come from. And that is one of, I think, the most valuable things that Teach for America does because they, when they put these high-achieving college graduates into these programs, they're doing it with the idea that many of them, after two years, will go on to something else. And they don't care. They're not, their purpose is not to recruit the next generation of teachers, even though, in fact, they do do that mm-hmm. because so many of them stay. But just as valuable are the people who go on to be doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs and have had this experience of two years in a poverty-stricken area working with children and seeing for themselves the challenges that these kids face and the huge potential that these kids have. And they carry that with them into their lives as community members, as voters, as advocates for children. So it's a huge thing that TFA is doing that goes way beyond what happens in the classroom during the two years that those people are there. When you have personal experience with these children who have been written off for decades and you see that these are kids just like your kids and the kids you grew up with and your neighbor's kids, they're full of hopes and dreams and personality and potential and they just need somebody to help them. Yeah. It's terrific. Oh, I love I love to hear about that. Um, we just have a few minutes left. I wonder if you can just give a last quick tidbit of advice. If if there's a woman listening to the show, <laughs> she's thinking about starting her own company, her mm-hmm. own business. What would you say to her just to kind of give her that push? Um, I would say that that you need to have people around you who believe that you can do it. And if the people who are currently around you don't believe you can do it, then go out and find other people because you can't be discouraged. You have to have people who are going to help pick you up when you fall because you're going to fall and who believe that you will accomplish your goals if you're committed to them. Yeah. So I'd say surround yourself with positive people. And people who know what your gifts are. Yes. So they remind yes, you. Yes. Right? remind you why you're the greatest at being you right because you are everybody is right exactly um what can you give your contact information in in case there's a listener who wants to get in touch with you sure um our website is hollistercreative.com our office and design studio is located in Bryn Mawr and uh, you can email me at kim l at hollistercreative.com Terrific. And that's Hollister, H-O-L-L-I-S-T-E-R, right? Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in today. I loved hearing your story. You've got some great advice, and and I have no doubt why your success. It's been a pleasure, (laughs) Susan. Thank you. Thank you. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. If you're listening and you'd like information on the show, feel free to reach out to my website at womentowatch.net, and that's women, the number two, watch.net. Have a great week, everyone.